If you're visiting with us today, let me be one among many to thank you for choosing to worship with us. We appreciate your presence here. We hope that you find God here. Our great desire is to avail you to the Lord Jesus Christ and to magnify him. Let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Also, if you're visiting, I should probably introduce myself. My name is Greg, and I serve here as the lead pastor. And uh, after we wrap up our time in the Word, I like to head to the back and greet everybody as they exit. And if I don't know you, please introduce yourself, and I'd love to say hello. Well, while you're turning to Exodus chapter 1, let me just ask for a show of hands, if this applies to you, that when we announced that we were going to be studying the book of Exodus, you realized that this would be the first time that you have engaged in a serious study of the book of Exodus, that this will be a first for you, uh, a, a serious study. Go ahead and lift them nice and high so I can see everybody. Okay, several. Okay, wonderful. Probably about half of us in here. This is sort of our first serious exposure to the book of Exodus, and I, I hope uh, I'll be up to the task in delivering uh, God's word to you as we journey through this book. Let's pick up our reading in verse 1, and we're going to go down through verse 14. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. I believe the NIV translates that best, by the way, where it says, and Joseph meant nothing to him. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is the word of God, and I am certain he will add his blessing to it. Let's pray. God, would you give us grace to understand this passage, especially as it relates to what goes before and what goes beyond. But most importantly, Lord, may we begin to grasp your mysterious providence. 
things happen to us, things happen around us that we don't understand. Certain things are guaranteed to happen to us that will bring us great suffering, most of which will probably not compare to the suffering that was laid upon your people during this time. Yet in all of this, you're moving your plan of redemption forward. In all of this, you're accomplishing great and mighty purposes. And one day we will stand in awe of all that you accomplished in that trial and through that trial. Lord, we don't observe this flippantly. For some of us are under heavy burdens right now. And I pray that whatever else is said, that you would grant us perspective on these trials. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man, his name was William Cooper. He was born in England right about the time Jonathan Edwards was ministering here in the United States. His mom died when he was six. His dad was a distant and feelingless fellow who sent his son off to boarding school. His son was raised by others and was never close to his dad. When he turned 18, he fell hopelessly in love. For seven years, he courted this young lady, only at the last minute to have the father of the bride-to-be pull her away from him, and both of them died single. He continued to write her poems for the rest of his life. At 21, he had his first mental breakdown. It was a deep psychosis that landed him in what we would call an insane asylum. He took three very real attempts on his life at 21, and as he went on with life, about every decade he would have another one of these episodes. And he took, tried to take his life at least a dozen times through the course of his journey. For as deep as those trials were, however, when he came to faith, God gave him unusual ability to express life. It was when he was in this insane asylum, the director was a Christian, and he left a Bible on a bench. And William Cooper was walking by one day and picked up the Bible and read the story of how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And for the first time in his life thought, maybe what the Lord did for others, he could do for me. And he started a journey of walking with the Lord. Eventually, he came into contact with a man named John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, and John Newton and William Cooper teamed up to write a hymnal. Newton was a man of action. He was a decent poet in his own right, and he wrote a lot of good hymns. I think we have over 200 of them he wrote, and they're good. William Cooper wrote fewer hymns but his were transcendent. And here's one of them. Here's a man who lived most of his life in deep depression and anxiety. A man who couldn't figure out why God allowed certain things to happen. But he was trying to figure it out. And a poet of great skill wrote these words. 
God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. And like a charioteer, rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread. Think about that on a summer afternoon, the big thunder head clouds forming in the sky. They, make, they strike fear into your heart. But really, they are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides his smiling, sorry for the misplaced word there, he, smi- he hides his smiling face. I can't think of a passage that he could have drawn this more directly from than Exodus chapter 1. This hymn is a perfect song of what happens in Exodus chapter 1, where God's people are flourishing. God is blessing them, but then a trial of almost unimaginable magnitude lands upon them. And behind that frowning providence, God is behind it, smiling and pouring blessings upon them as he moves his ark of redemption forward. And so let's move ahead to Exodus chapter 1, and there's two things I want us to note as we begin our journey here. The first is this, there is a strong connection in Exodus 1 with what just came before it in the book of Genesis. Last week I told you, and I really strongly recommend you do this, that on chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Exodus, that you put the word and. And these are the names that are written. The reason I want you to put that word and there is that it's there in Hebrew. It's the first word in the Hebrew uh, rendering of this. It's the first word in Hebrew. And these are the names. In other words, the writer is trying to draw a connection between what is now and what was before. And then he goes on to quote, Moses goes on to quote his own work. He quotes from Genesis 46.8. And this listing of the people that went down into Egypt is a direct quotation. And the writer is expecting that you'll understand who these people are. Joseph and his son, Joseph and his brothers, Jacob and his sons, Israel down in Egypt. But if you're new to the Bible, that might not be apparent at all. You might not realize that this is the continuation of a grand story. And so let's very briefly review how we got here. And we will go very quickly. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named Abram, who's living in a city called Ur. And he says, I want you to get up out of her, and I want you to go dwell in the land where I tell you to dwell. And he promises them, I'm going to give you huge blessings while you're there. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars are in the sky. You will be blessed, and you will be a blessing. At the time, he's 75. His wife is 65. 
God continues to promise him that he's going to have a son. And God waits till he's 100 and until his wife is 90. The year before, she says, I'm worn out and my husband is old. (laughs) No comment on her age, just that she's a little tired right now. He's the old one. An old geezer. Well, he had a kid. He and Sarah both. And that child's name was Isaac. They named him Laughter because when God made them this promise, here she is, 89 years old, and she laughs at the notion that she is going to have a baby in her own womb and to remind them forevermore of how they laughed at the Lord's promise of provision they named their son Laughter. Well, Laughter meets a woman and they marry and they have a pair of twins. They have twins, Jacob and Esau, and it's Jacob who carries the family name forward. Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter. They're living abroad and they come back home. Abraham was a a man of great character. Abraham was Abraham will give you the shirt off his back. Abraham was so wise, giving and kind, godly. Everything that Abraham was, Jacob was not. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was stingy. Abraham would give you the shirt off his back, and then Jacob would sneak it away from you when you weren't looking. Well, Jacob also played favorites. Jacob had four wives, and he treated three rather harshly. One, he gave all sorts of preferential treatment to, and she had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. The ten other brothers hated Joseph in particular. And the book of Genesis tells us that they couldn't even say a kind word to him. Jacob foolishly sent Joseph to go check up on these other ten men. And when he went out to them, they said, let's kill him. And then Judah had the idea, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's sell him to these Midianites. And the Midianites sold Joseph to a man named Potiphar down in Egypt. Through an unlikely string of events that you can read about in the the book of Genesis, Joseph rises to a place of national prominence. He's what we would call the prime minister, but he never stops being a slave. He's just a slave to Pharaoh now. Nevertheless, he held great significance. Joseph's brothers come back to him because they're hungry. And Joseph finds out their true character and a great story of redemption ensues. The family is reunited and Joseph places his family in northern Egypt in a fertile land where their flocks can grow. And that's where the book of Exodus picks up. Joseph is here in Egypt with his family and these 70 people that came down into Egypt. And there they begin to grow and to multiply and the story begins to take shape. Genesis followed God's development of a family And Exodus follows God's development of a nation. And so, the story of the nation begins 
in verse 5. I'm sorry, in verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. And that brings us to our second point. There's a strong connection to Genesis, but there's also a strong connection of Genesis working itself out in the book of Exodus. I want us to notice that God blesses this nation. God blesses the sons of Jacob. God blesses the brothers of Joseph with great abundance. Okay? I want you to look right here in your translations. Somehow or another, it's almost impossible to bring over into English just how much the writer's trying to emphasize the numerical growth of these people. Look here at verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. There are seven different words that are used to describe the numerical explosion of these people. Let me translate it for you literally, and I think you'll get a sense of just how the writer is trying to communicate this. He says, And the sons of Israel were fruitful, and they swarmed. This word goes back to Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 22, and Genesis 1, 28, where it says that God created the animal life, the insects and the birds. And they swarmed all over the land. That's the word, swarming, teeming with life. It says, and they teemed, they swarmed, and they enlarged, and they multiplied. And then the writer does something. He uses the same Hebrew word, but uses, uses them together in such a way to where they magnify each other. Um, I believe it says in here they grew exceedingly strong, but the, probably the most accurate way, though it's terrible English, the most accurate way to translate that is they multiplied in much muchness, okay? Uh, uh, mode maod. It's the same word with a little qualifier on it. They, the idea is however much you think they're growing, put an exponential value on that, and they just kept going and exploding. And then if that wasn't enough, he says, and they filled the land. God is just pouring out his blessing on these people. But if you like to write in your Bible, I'd like to encourage you to write down a few cross-references because actually what was happening here was a fulfillment of God's great promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 12, 1 and 2, God says, I'm going to make your offspring great. It's the, word, it's the same word, ma'od, great. And then in chapter 15, Abraham is feeling down. He's feeling isolated. He's endangered. God says, hey, Abraham, I, stop being afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your very great reward. And Abraham says, how can I? How can I stop being afraid when you said I would have a kid and I don't have one yet? God says, hey, come outside with me. Look into the sky. Look at the stars. That's how many your offspring will be. 
And Abraham believed him. And it was counted to him for righteousness. In Genesis 22, 17, Abraham offers, attempts to offer up Isaac. And God says, because of this, because of this, your offspring are going to be more numerous than the sand on the sea. And in 26, 14, God reiterates the same promise to Isaac. And so when we come back to Exodus chapter 1 and we read these words, the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied. They swarmed. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong in much muchness so that the land teemed with them in absolute fullness. They were so big and so mighty and so numerous that the people of Egypt worried that that little Israel would overpower them. The blessings of children were flowing into these people. Babies upon babies upon babies. And it was all in fulfillment of what God had already promised. But there is a side to this that we need to be aware of. God had other prophecies. Namely, in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham that his people would go into slavery and they would be burdened there. And so, it's true. Joseph came into Egypt at a time when there were foreign rulers. And these foreign rulers were called Hyksos people. I believe Last week, I was mispronouncing that. I think I was saying Hiskos, but it's, it's hard to say. Hyksos. They were foreigners. And they came and they took over Egypt. And the Egyptians had to rise up after a couple hundred years and kick them all out. And it was that Pharaoh, it was that man who rose and kicked out these Hyksos people who said, oh, now I'm worried. Now I'm worried that these Israelites, that the same is going to happen to them, that that they're going to get too numerous for us. And so we're introduced to this great problem, and the problem is that there's a figure who is essentially an anti-God. Look right here, this Pharaoh, this brings us to kind of our our third point for the day. God's people suffer, it says right here, that the Pharaoh, there arose a new king over Egypt, he was a native Egyptian, He'd kicked out the Hyksos. Joseph meant nothing to him. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many for us. And from this point forward, we are going to deal with a string of Pharaohs. In Exodus 1 and 2 alone, we'll have probably three of them. And then four and beyond, we'll deal with one Pharaoh. But this Pharaoh, this particular Pharaoh, grows fearful. Let's, let's look and see what his fears are. He says that the, the people are going to, the people are so numerous, the people are multiplying so fast. They're soon going to outnumber us. But then he has another fear. He has another fear. And this could go either way. It depends on how you translate one word. And the word can mean either one. Let's look right here in our translations. It says, the people of Israel are too mighty, uh, are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with him. Lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. And here's that word, escape from the land. Escape from the land. 
That can mean one of two things, and it's really close, to be honest with you. I don't know which it's supposed to be. Some of our translations take it this way, that they'll escape from the land, and some of the translations take it the way I'll mention in just a moment. But if we follow this one, it means this. Pharaoh looked at all these people and the economic advantages they brought to the land. Here were a bunch of slaves bringing huge amounts of labor. They were making brick, and they were doing all sorts of things, and building the pyramids, and so on and so forth. And he didn't want to lose this massive labor force in the land. And he's worried that if a foreign ruler comes in, it would provide the Israelites just enough opportunity to escape And even if the Egyptians were successful in the war, they would lose all of their slave labor. Now let us not think this is strange. At the dawn of the Civil War, this was one of the great concerns of Southern leaders. That the slave population would rise up and would hurt the nation economically. Or that the slave population would rise up. And here's our second meaning, would enslave the enslavers. Because remember what I told you, this word escape? It's the Hebrew word nala, and it can mean to get up and go, or it can mean to rise up and dominate. It can mean either one. You can kind of see, imagine, imagine if I was saying, I'm going to go up. That could mean to go up and out, or it can mean to rise up and dominate. We're not sure which it meant. But the Pharaoh is worried either that they'll escape or that the slaves will take over and enslave them. And so, Pharaoh's like, we got to deal with this. We got to deal with this. Let's do this. Let's make their labor even harder. And so, Pharaoh begins to bitterly oppress these people. We need to remember all those words I told you that Moses piled up for their abundance and for their, their expansion. Moses uses almost as many words describing their enslavement. It says right here, let's read these words. It says they put taskmasters over them. This This is forced workers. These are people whose job it is to whip them into submission. Over them, to afflict them. This is literally the word for whip. As a matter of fact, the word taskmasters is a, is a word that's onomatopoeia. You guys know what onomatopoeia is? It's like the, the word boom is onomatopoeia because it is the sound. It's the word that means the sound boom. The word taskmaster comes from the word, and it sounds like this in Hebrew, crack. Can you imagine what sound that would be? Whack. That's the word. A person who smacks the whip 
who takes long sticks and rods and whacks them over the back so that they work harder, a thwack. It says that they were bittered. It was bittered work that was piling up on them, that they worked as stonemasons with mortar and brick, and that wasn't enough. When they weren't working as stonemasons, they'd throw them out in the sun in the fields and tell them to work, and it says in all their work, they were ruthlessly, pitilessly made to work as slaves. Moses is trying to enhance just how severe this slavery was. We've noted before in some of our previous sermons that in the ancient world, there were all different types of slavery. And in our culture, we, we have different words for things that get put under slavery. Back then, what they would call slavery back then. And there's sort of a mild version where a, a slave was more like a, a hired person who had all sorts of liberties. And then there was the type of slave that we would associate with slavery. The hard cracking of the whip. That's what's going on here. And that's what Moses is trying to emphasize. This was hard, arduous labor. There, now, archaeology is a huge help here. There are all sorts of pictures of Egyptian reliefs. Of Egyptian, now bear in mind, the Egyptians are not writing this down with any remorse. The Egyptians are trying to show off how powerful they were. What a great nation that we can have all these slaves. And they, the, the reliefs depict Egyptians standing over cowering foreigners. Frequently, the foreigners are on their hands and knees. And the Egyptian is standing over them with a whip. And the foreigners are doing all sorts of menial tasks while the Egyptian overlord threatens to whip them. A few years ago, this is a few hundred years out of context, but it's the sort of thing that you can bank the Israelites were going through. Archaeologists in northern Egypt discovered a mass grave of adolescent slaves. Thousands and thousands of skeletons. Almost all of them aged 10 to 14 the majority of whom had massive skull fractures and spinal injuries. And over 10% of the 10 to 14-year-olds had already developed arthritis in their bones. These are children who are having huge blocks thrown onto their backs. And when they don't walk fast enough, the taskmaster strikes them in the skull or in the back. And if they die, they die, and their bodies are thrown into a mass grave soon to be forgotten. That's the sort of thing that Israelites were putting up with. That's the sort of bitter enslavement that Pharaoh had in mind for them. Yet, in all of that, 
Something else is happening. Let's look at our text. It says they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now, Pharaoh is going to take more extreme measures, as we'll find out next week and the week after that. And his people, believe it or not, because of the dread that they are of the Egyptians, there's an irony in the text. Nobody obeys Pharaoh. <laughs> he says, kill the Israelite firstborn, kill the sons and the midwives. You know what they do? They promptly disobey. Pharaoh says, throw the boys into the Nile River. Do you know who disobeys? Pharaoh's own daughter, and Moses becomes a person in the house of Pharaoh. Systematic disobedience for the, toward the anti-God. He's trying to wipe out the nation, but the more he throws upon them, the more God continues to bless. And one thing that we need to notice is this slavery ends up forging national identity and solidarity. You don't hear of intermarriage, that God's people aren't aren't marrying with Egyptians. And what that does is it preserves the family line from which the Messiah would come. But it also forges a national identity. Here this people was committed to each other because they were suffering under the hands of these Egyptian people. And this is a, a crucible experience that draws them together. And when it comes time for them to leave, they still struggle at every turn to band together, but even so, this event so forged them that they couldn't, that they were coming together. I think I'm having a little trouble here with my mic. I'll give them one second. Oh, there we go. We got it figured out now. All right. Despite the harshness, Israelite people continue to marry and multiply. Now, Let's close with three, with three thoughts, okay? We worked through that material pretty quickly. Let's close with three thoughts. Okay, number one, God's redemption, God's work of redemption, and this was part of the story of redemption, is wider than you can possibly fathom. God's redemption is wider than you can possibly fathom. Now, before I get going any farther, I want to say something. I'm sure all of you would raise your hand and admit to this. When you're going through a trial, and a really, not a minor trial, when you're, when you're, when you're in the crucible, when, it, when life is hitting you hard, and some well-meaning soul comes to you and says something kind, but perspectiveless, flippant, breezy. Oh, God does everything for a reason. That is thin comfort, isn't it? In fact, in some cases, it's offensive. 
when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to hear perspective. So I don't offer any flippant perspective today. This is truth. But I also understand there's times when you don't want anybody to try to tell you truth. You just want somebody to cry with you or get down in the mud with you, and that's fine. But if you're there, you do need to cling to some perspective. And here's the first one. That whatever that trial is, God is attempting to use that, and he's attempting to use it in ways far wider than you can possibly imagine. It's not just about the physical, bodily trial you're going through. He's trying to do something in your soul. God says, God says that the thing that's really valuable to him, the thing that's more precious to him even than gold is your faith and god is trying to work something in your faith that has eternal weight of glory there's something big going on and god is going to have you learn lessons and see things that for eternity you will praise him for and yes in the moment when the crisis is on you. It's hard to see that. I get it. But you need to understand that God is trying to do something bigger, much bigger than you can imagine. He's trying to work something weighty and heavy in you. That's the word, an eternal weight of glory. The, the word glory is weight. He's trying to add depth and significance and weight to you. He wants to make you a rock. And often that's done through trials. Number two, God intends to use your trials for the redemption of others. As God shapes weight in you, as he shapes glory and faith in something more valuable than gold, as he touching your life in so many different ways, far beyond your ability to understand it. This is what Cooper was talking about when he says, don't judge the Lord according to feeble sense. It might not make sense to you. God is down there in the depths of his mind, treasuring up purposes that he wants to be active in the lives of other people. Your trial has not come to full fruition until you've sat down across from another brother or sister and said to them, from deep in your heart, I know exactly how you feel. And this is how God brought me through. And then God wants you to do that again. And again. And again. And again, until he brings you home to glory, where you will say, God, you brought me through it all. The trial has not worked its perfect weight of glory until it begins to help and shape others into the image of Christ, and that is God's intent for it. Number three, I can't say, this is, I saved this one for the very end. This is the most important one. This is the truth you might need to cling to all your days like Cooper did. God is nobody's debtor. 
God is nobody's debtor. You're not going to stand before God someday and shake your fist at him and say, why did you withhold this from me? Why didn't you give that to me? How come I didn't get this or that? I don't feel vindicated over this particular thing. I don't feel like I've been dealt with justly. No, no. There's coming a day when you will stand before God fully satisfied that the judge has done right. And when the scope of eternity, the curtain on the scope of eternity is pulled back and you see all those different ways that God has been working this thing for you and for those around you, and all the many different ways that he was holding you up and you had no clue about it. And when God gives you his well done before the host of heaven, you will say, the judge of all the earth has done right. God is not in your debt. He never will be. And even though this trial feels like a heavy weight from God, one day you will praise him for the justness and rightness of it and how he handled it. Let's pray. Father, many of us in here today are undergoing a trial. Some of us trials of faith. Some of us physical trials some of us caring for family members, and that weight has been thrown upon us. There are Christians around the globe who are being hurt much the same way these, Egypt these Israelites were hurt by the Egyptians. It is an act of faith to say that the judge of all the earth will do right. And I pray, Lord, that you would content us to continue to look to you as you work redemption in so many different and unimaginable ways, not just in our life, but in the lives of those we touch. And I pray that whatever it is we're going through or will go through, that it would have its perfect work and would work in us that eternal weight of glory and perseverance. Lord, we thank you we love you, and we worship you, Lord. In giving us Christ, you've already given us everything. And so I pray that we would look to him and lean on him, no matter the situations of life. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.